0: Hello, thank you for listening to this sermon from our Revive service. We hope it helps you learn more about God and allow you to grow closer to Him and in your faith. Good morning. Children, you are dismissed for Children's Church. We hope you have a great time. If you have your Bibles, you would turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 13. Today will be our final day in the book of Romans until we get to February. Thankful for this weekend and uh, our time with our family. I hope that you had a, a good week and a good time with family and with friends. Um, my uh, daughter Lene is mad at me right now because um, I'm sitting there in church. And I, as your kids get older, maybe I'm just getting sappy, okay? Um, but it's like you, you, uh, you cherish those moments. And as a dad, those moments come and go. And, and so I'm just standing there worshiping, and I'm just like, it is so great to s- that we're all here. Like, we're all here worshiping God, and that my kids love Jesus, and that we get to be all in one place together. And so I pull out my phone because I think, I, I, I want to remember this, right? And so I pull out my phone. This is just a few moments ago, so you'll have to forgive me, all right? But I'm like, I'm going to do a selfie, like just to get us, like, I want to remember this moment. And uh, of course, she looks like this. (laughs) Zach tucks behind his mother. And so my selfie picture didn't work. Um, But I have it in my mind that it is such a blessing to be able to worship God together, not only with my family here, but with us together. And this family, this West Hill family And uh, I know there are some who have traveled, some who are gone this week. Um, Thankful for each one of you and for the opportunity to open up God's word together and to sing praises to God. I said it last week and I'll say it again. There's no other place like being able to gather as the body of Christ and to lift up his name and to sing praises to his name. Heaven isn't going to be this like we sit on the clouds and we play our harps and sing, you know, kumbaya or songs like, slow songs uh worship in heaven is going to be i think a picture of that is here like i think it's going to be where we gather and and where we we lift up the name of jesus and where we proclaim the lord and 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 we get to practice that in a way we're doing what we're going to do all of eternity and i know that scares some people and maybe you as well you're like We're just going to sing forever. No, I think there's going to be a whole lot more, and that leads us into a whole nother study that we won't get into today or for a while because we have some other things mapped out. But um, do your own study. Dig in and see what heaven's going to be like. And uh, we praise the Lord that we get a little glimpse of that today. We get to enjoy that relationship with our God. And uh, that's where I want to start off today because Romans chapter 13, is Paul's writing, he's writing to believers He's writing to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And I never want to assume, as you've gathered here today, that, that, you, uh, that you are a believer. I want to give you that opportunity. I want, to, I want to proclaim what is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus died for you and he paid a penalty. He paid the debt that you owed. Each one of us deserved death. We deserve separation from God in a real place called hell. But God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus. That's why we celebrate him coming at uh, Christmas. And then we celebrate uh, at Easter and even a couple days before that, Good Friday, we celebrate Jesus' death, his burial, and then his resurrection. That Jesus would die in our place to take the penalty that we were due, and he took it upon himself. He did that because he loved us and because he wants us to enjoy an eternal relationship with him. A relationship that isn't just here and now, it is here and now. We get to enjoy that relationship, but that relationship that will be forever in a real place called heaven. And if you haven't claimed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you to do that this morning. There's no more important decision that you could ever make than to place your faith in Jesus Christ. If you're there with Romans 13, if you would stand with me. you follow along with me in your texts in front of you, they'll also be up on the screen, but we're going to read all 14 verses of this chapter here together. Would you follow with me? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We pray that as we dig into Romans 13 here, that you would help us to uncover these truths, Lord, so that we may better understand you, that we may better under, uh, know you and understand what your will is for our lives. Um, but Lord, we also pray that while we may gain that insight, we help. we pray that your spirit would help us to live out those truths. And so, Lord, meet with us. May your spirit move freely in our minds and hearts that you would be honored and glorified through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Quite the text here, right? This is a great after-Thanksgiving passage to go over, right? You're like, uh, really? First of all, maybe you're still asleep. I know Aaron's working on the microphone here a little bit. So if you hear humming, we've got a new mic. It's actually an old mic that we got a new cord, and we're working out some bugs. Probably doesn't bother you as much as it bothers me. So Thanksgiving, you just ate turkey. You're sleepy. It's nice and warm. I turned up the heat this morning because I was cold. And see what it does. You guys are all non-responsive. Next week, bring your sweaters. It's going to be colder, Okay. This is a difficult passage, okay? This is, this is difficult, and, and actually, where we've been, it's been difficult. Think back to last week, and, and living out the end of chapter 12, and, and my heading of, of my text tells me it's the marks of Christian living, and we talked about living out our faith, and what that really looks like, that we would not repay evil for evil. The world is constantly trying to mold us and to make us into how to live life. And that's the beginning of that chapter, of chapter 12. Paul reminds us, don't be molded by what the world standards and how the world lives. He's going to continue this, all right? We've, we've talked about the vertical grace in the first part of Romans here. And then we've extended here a, a horizontal grace. How do we live life with one another and with this world? And so how do we live that grace out? And so that it's evident to a world about who God is and who his son is. And so we get to this passage in Romans 13. And if I'm really honest, this is really hard. And actually, it takes me back. I have PTSD. All right. It takes me back to COVID. All right. And those times of like, how do we wrestle through what is right and what is wrong? When the government tells us something, how do we respond as Christ followers And let me just say, I don't think it's as simple as just saying, taking one verse and saying, hey, look, this is what Paul wrote. This is what we are to do, all right? Just as we looked at last week, so we need to look at this week, the full counsel of God's word, all right? And so don't take Romans 13, especially the first uh, seven verses, and make it say what you want it to say, all right? We want the full counsel of God, but Paul is making some some clarity, he's giving some clarity for these Roman Christians, these Christians, Christ followers who are living in Rome, that they would have an understanding of what it means to live in their world as a Christ follower. You've experienced this grace of God in your life, and so here's now how you can live. And so he's sharing that. And he starts off and he says, let every person Now, does that leave anybody out? If it says, let every person, that's you included, right? That's me. And what he says here is, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. I don't know about you, but I have a problem with authority. My dad told me that when I was a teenager, and I still have a problem with it. Not good authority, but bad authority. Let me read to you uh, a little bit, a little couple paragraphs here from Chuck Swindoll. I like how he starts this section off in his commentary. And I just want to read it for you because I think it helps us as we wrestle through. What does this look like in our life? Because we can think of exceptions, right? Exceptions that would say, how do we subject ourselves to... Governing authority, especially when they're bad authority. Let me just start with this. Chuck Sundahl writes this. For the next few moments, travel back in time with me and imagine yourself wrestling with a particular moral dilemma. You must either follow your Christian conscience or obey your government. We begin in 1760. Your English... "'Reared and educated in London and where your family has lived for generations. "'You are loyal to the crown, even though you don't always agree with King George's policies. "'England has been good to you. Your family's business has prospered. "'In time, your father senses your need for adventure and proposes that you establish a presence in the colonies across the Atlantic. "'You're attracted to the risk and to the possibilities of life in New England.' So you plan the voyage, you sail to America, you purchase property, and you begin building your business. When you arrive, there's talk of a revolution, but it's nothing new, uh, nothing you feel compelled to heed. However, as the years pass, you understand why the colonists are upset. Taxes appear everywhere and threaten to drain your fledgling business. And the money doesn't appear to to be returned to the form of government services. You have shared the injustices with your American friends that they have endured, yet you are still a loyal subject to the crown. Time passes quickly. The question of revolution cannot be avoided much longer, and you must choose your loyalty. What do you do? Your heart is in your homeland, but your conscience has taken root in America, in American soil. Do you stay? Do you side with the English, or do you oppose the people of your birth? Soon, a coalition of revolutionaries invites you to join them in arms. Do you become a minute man or do you distance yourself and pray for redcoats to appear? Travel forward in time 100 years to 1860. You own a plantation in southern Alabama. 12,000 acres of cotton, corn, and peaches and many slaves to do the work. The system has allowed you to increase your wealth year after year and things couldn't be better for you in your estate. But you've recently placed your faith in Jesus Christ and now you struggle because your pastor, an uncommon man of courage, is preaching against slavery. Your peers tell you it's moral and even justified by scripture. But deep down, in the quiet of your soul, you know better. Then the issue confronts you in the flesh and bone. When a new president is elected to office in November of 1860, your state succeeds from the Union in February of 1861, and all-out war begins in April. What do you do? Do you release your slaves, abandon your family, homestead, move north, and fight for the Union Army? Or do you ignore your conscience, keeping the slaves, and remain in the South? Fast forward again to the year 1936. You're a German Christian living in Berlin, a dictator, mad with prejudice, has been given immersed power by growing numbers of undiscerning and sometimes violent fellow citizens. The future is bright for Germany. Prosperity has returned. People are working again. Your business is finally turning to profit. And the Berlin Summer Olympics will allow Germany to feel proud again. Meanwhile, some of your Jewish friends and neighbors have been forced to wear an ominous Star of David. And have been disappearing without explanation. With each passing day, you are pressured to choose your loyalty. Do you support Hitler and the majority of your peers, or do you advocate for the fair treatment of Jews and other des- undesirables? Do you openly stand against your government, or do you recognize its sovereignty and obey its commands? The believers in Rome undoubtedly found it easier to remain cloistered in their own communities than to engage their pagan magistrates. By keeping their distance from anything involving government, they would have encountered few moral dilemmas. Unfortunately, Chuck Swindoll writes this several years ago. He says, I see a lot of this going on today. This detachment can take two forms. On the one hand, Christians can become defiantly independent, nurturing a resentful animosity and even an anti-government attitude. They almost see it as their duty to tweak the state's nose whenever they can. On the other hand, I also encounter Christians with an attitude of uninvolved indifference, which is equally unhealthy. People with this backward-leaning posture think, we're citizens of God's kingdom, So any and all participation in civil affairs is a waste of time at best and potentially sinful at worst. So why bother? Well, the apostle thought differently and he explained why Christians should avoid these two extremes. I share this at the beginning here of our text because it is difficult, isn't it? When you think about our history of the world, and we could spend a lot more time just reviewing history and looking at the different times and the places where individuals rise up to overcome their government. When we look at this text, it is hard to walk through. Uh, It's a challenge for me as a pastor to clearly teach it and preach it to you. I want to do my best here this morning, but I encourage you once again that you would dig in And that you would look at the full counsel of God's word so that you may understand not only what Paul is writing, but what God tells us as Christ followers how we are to live. Let's look at this and let's walk through. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. This word be subject, hypotasos, which means to submit to the wishes of others. Let me just say this, and I'll say this again because I think we all struggle with authority, some of you more than others. Some of you have not a lot of difficulty like I do with authority. And I have a lot to learn from you. This term submit in our culture today is viewed as very negative. Paul is writing for us to submit, to submit to other people. So let me pause and let me ask you before we go any farther. Are you willing to submit? That means to bring yourself under someone else. It's very clear from scripture how that goes. First, we submit to God. God is the ultimate authority. And as we will see in this text, God is in charge of all things. Do you submit to him and to his will in your life? Oftentimes, I throw hissy fits. You ever seen that kid that doesn't get his way and doesn't get his toy that he wants in the grocery store, in the supermarket? And he not only yells and screams, but he ends up on the floor, kicking and wailing his hands. You ever done that with God? That's not submission. Likewise, We are not only to submit to God, but wives are to submit to their husbands. Now hear me out. All right. In the context of what I'm talking about is there is a hierarchy that God has put into place. God did it, not me. Now with that submission, wives submitting to their husbands, they place themselves under trusting and believing that God has placed the husband as the head of the home. You may not like that. Take it up with God, because it's his word that says it. Oh, there we go. A few. But as we see even in marriage, where the wife is to submit to the husband, that is, that is not just a one-directional thing here. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. What did Christ do for us? He gave his life. He was willing to set aside his own privilege in heaven. And it says that he lowered himself. He became humble to become one of us as man. Mankind. And he died. He died on a cross. The cruelty of what that looks like. And as men, we don't just usurp our authority and say, Woman, listen to us. Which I tried once and does not work. But you lovingly come along and you relate to one another and you converse and you help each other. There is a structure though. Here, Paul is giving us this structure as government. The government is the structure that we are to submit and come underneath. And as bad as we may think our government is, I would encourage you to do a history lesson and you will quickly find out that we are still very privileged and very blessed. I'm not saying that it is not without fault. Just as my wife could tell you that I am not without fault. God is the only one without fault. And thus why we need to continue to submit and come underneath His leading, His guiding, His word that He gives us for instruction. Paul continues and he says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Here is a great reminder for us that no matter how things go crazy in our world, that we can constantly continue to come back to the sovereignty of our God. That God is the one. There is no authority except from God. Did you read that right? There is no authority except from those that come from God. And you, you may say, well, why would God allow that person to be in authority? Why would God put that person in authority? Because it's part of his plan. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And yet we constantly, as I've said this, I heard this uh, a few weeks ago. Man, I love it. We're constantly trying to be the God of our little world. You want to be God of your world. And the sooner that you realize that, the sooner you you can repent of that and turn from that and say, You know what? God, I'm struggling with this and I may not understand what you're doing. My heart cries out to you. Look at the Old Testament. Look at, look at the prophets who, who were mourning and crying out for Israel and Judah to repent and turn to God. And they saw these foreign nations come and take over God's people. They mourned. That's why there's a whole book called Lamentations. Was God still in charge? Yes, he was. Will God always be in charge? Yes, he will. Regardless of what goes on in our world. Do you believe that? That will be a big part of our first point. That I'll get to later. We've got to wake up. The world has caused us to fall asleep. And where we lose sight of what what reality truly is. There is a God who is in charge of your life. Nothing. Nothing can stop him from doing what he wishes and what he wants. Do you believe that? That's the question. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. He's put them there. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. This is where the rub gets a little raw, right? This is where we're like, wait a minute. How how does this work? How does this work when Paul says, don't resist the authorities? And if you do, judgment's coming. Well, continue to read, because our context is important here. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, right? But to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? This is where it is good for us to be reminded that fear can be a healthy thing. There is a big God who is in control of all things, and he is in authority over you. Do you have a healthy fear of him? Well, Proverbs tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. We shouldn't fear him, as I did for many, many years, fearing that if I make one mistake that he was going to strike me. Right? If you make a mistake, maybe you made a mistake yesterday or you're going to make one today and then you get a flat tire or something bad happens to you and you're like, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. I messed up. God doesn't work that way. God does discipline his children, but we don't have to fear the wrath of God. We need to fear the holiness of God, and that's something we lost sight of, right? That God is holy and perfect, and that you and I are not, but yet we get to come to God because of the holiness of Jesus, but as we look at our lives and we continue to look at our lives, when we're not in line with God, we need to be quick to repent, when the Spirit convicts you and me that we're, we're not right in sitting under that authority because God's told us clearly how to live, we need to repent of that. The same is true of authority. And when authority, in this case, the governing authorities who are in charge over us, whether it be local, state, national, whatever it looks like, they're there for God Because God has put them there for good. Now, what about the times when they're not there for good? That's where the rub is. And I don't want to take away the tension here. Because there's no way to give you an easy answer to take away this tension. The tension will always be there. It was there in each of the situations that I read about that Chuck told us about. The tensions are there when we talk about when do we submit and when do we come underneath that authority. And when do we say enough's enough. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. The tension is there. Verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God. An avenger, I love that word again. We talked about it last week. All right, God has Avengers, and they're not from Marvel. An Avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Here we see, once again, we need to be fearful in the sense of doing what is right and honoring God by doing what is right. And when we don't do what's right, for example, you walk into a store and you say, you know what, I really like that. I'd like to have that and you grab it off the shelf and put it in your pocket, that's called what? Stealing. That's not good. And if they stop you, whether they stop you or not, it's still not good. But if you get caught because you stole something, now you have a punishment. And you should be afraid. We don't have to be afraid when we do what's good and right. Why? Because we answer to God. And that's what the authority is there to help those who do wrong. Now the question arises, what about those who do right, but get punished for doing right? We'll get there, I promise. Verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection. Here's that word again, to submit to the wishes of others. One must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So as we do things and we come underneath that authority that God has placed in our life, we do that not only because of fearing the wrath of God, but also for our own well-being, We want to do right because it weighs on us. When we sin and do what's wrong, it becomes a weight. The writer of Hebrews talks about throwing aside every weight, every encumbrance, the sin that so easily entangles us. Don't think that sin is light and easy. That's a deception. That's a lie from Satan himself. Any sin, and don't, again, hear me out. You say, well, I haven't committed murder. Praise the Lord, you haven't. Some of you may have felt like that this week. I pray that you never, that was a joke, by the way. I pray that you never get to that point. It isn't just about murder or stealing, which there's a whole list that we're going to see here that Paul writes. But for us to come to understand sin is sin. And whether it takes place in your mind and in your heart, or there's an outward expression of that sin. It is still sin, and it runs contrary to the perfect and holy God. Some could read this passage and say, well, I'm a law-abiding citizen. And Paul would clap his hands and say, well, that's good. But it goes beyond just that. Verse 6, Paul is now going to address something that we all really like. <clears throat> for because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. I love that term here. He's called them servants in verse 4, which is diaconos, which is the same term that we would use for deacons. And now in verse 6, he uses this term Minister. A term that we would get liturgy from. A minister. These are ministers that what? What do we get to do? (laughs) He says, pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Maybe I should just pray and we'll go home. Do you like that? We like some of the things that come from our taxes. But oftentimes we can even argue and say there are things that our tax money would go towards that would be contrary to the scripture. That would be true during Paul's time of writing this as the believers who sat in Rome had to encounter and were on the On the heels of what was to come under Nero. It wasn't things that they agreed with. In fact, it was very much anti biblical. And yet, here Paul is writing very clearly something that Jesus had already addressed with his disciples and something for us here today. What do we do? You pay your taxes, you should pay your taxes. Why? Because that's what the Bible says. That's a way that we show our submission, our coming underneath the ministers that God has placed in our life. Regardless of what you think about a politician and how he or she is doing, let me challenge you, encourage you, would you look at them as a minister from God? You say, uh uh-uh. Pastor, now you've asked too much. All I'm doing is telling you what the Bible says. They are ministers for God. It doesn't say that they're ministers for God for always good things. Remember, who is sovereign in control of all things? God is. We see in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, where God says that he rises up and he takes down those who are kings. So, if God rises up and He takes down those who are kings, if He is sovereign in control of all things, if He has placed a king or some government official in that role of authority over you, is it our duty before God to come underneath their authority and to pay the taxes? Yes, it is. Even when we disagree, yes, it is. I told you, this is not going to be a fun sermon after the day of Thanksgiving. But actually, I do think it comes and it ties hand in hand. Because without Thanksgiving, we become grumbling and and, and disenchanted people of God. But when we can see that there is a God who is in control of all things, that he's in charge and that he places... Who he wishes in charge. It takes it out of our hands. Now we live in a great country. A country that allows you and I to have a vote. We get to have a vote in what takes place. That's a great thing. Until there are people who don't love God. And don't abide by his commands and his word and his truths. And they vote according to what they desire. And yet, do you still believe that God is in charge and he is sovereign? I do, and I have to. How can I, in my right mind, left apart from the holy scriptures, justify in my mind the passage of some of the laws that have taken place here of recent? I have to continue to keep coming back and saying, God, you have a plan. And right on the heels of that to say, God, would you help us to repent and turn back to you? Because the things that are going on are contrary to you, God. But does that mean that we rise up and that we should start killing people and hurting people? No. In fact, he continues this. And you may think this is a big break, but remember as Paul is writing this, There's no number eight here right before this next word. He's continuing on and he's saying, Owe no one anything. Well, he just said, Pay what is owed to you. So he's saying, Pay out anything that's owed to you. And then on the heels of that, this is what you're to do owe nothing to anyone. Some people will say, Oh, this is why you shouldn't take loans. Look at the context. The context isn't about loans. While this is a good principle, and there are other good godly principles throughout the scriptures that help us to say we need to be wise stewards of our funds, that's not what Paul is addressing when he's saying, don't take out any loans. Don't read that into the text. Instead, he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. In the midst of what Paul is writing in chapter 12 and now here in chapter 13, the the concept that has to be outflowing of our hearts and an overflow of our minds and how we live out our lives is this one concept, and it's love. Love flows from us. I'll let you look and continue to dig in deep about what does love look like. Again, don't take your definition from Google or from the world. Look at Scripture. Scripture helps us define what love is and how it's lived out in our lives. Paul is writing here and he's saying, listen, as you live each day and the authority that's around you, while you may disagree, know that I've put them in charge. They're there for the good of the people. You are called to love them. For the commandments, verse 9, here's the list. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment. They're summed up in these words, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. As you live life, fulfill the law, Paul's writing, and the way you fulfill the law is by living a life of love, loving other people, loving your neighbor. There's some clear definitions of what that means. It is not these things, not stealing, not coveting, not murdering, committing adultery. No. And yet, what do we see in our world today? Christ followers who have abandoned this concept of loving our neighbor. will fight for injustice against our government, but yet we're committing the very sins that Paul has listed here. We'll commit adultery. Say, well, I've never slept with another woman or another man. What have you set before your eyes? Pornography is a huge thing today. You say, well, I've never stolen anything. Good, don't steal. Have you fudged the numbers here or there? Have you taken advantage to your own well-being? You say, I- I've never committed murder. Remember what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus took the law and he set the standard higher. Because we have the spirit of the living God living inside of us. So he says, you say you've never committed murder, but you looked upon a brother and you've hated him. You've already committed murder in your heart. Say, well, I dislike people. I just don't hate them. Careful. How close do you want to ride that line? I love how he finishes this section. He says, besides this, you know the time. Hey, you need to subject yourselves to the authority that's over you. Paul says elsewhere to pray for those who are authorities. You should be praying for them. Subject yourself to that authority. Pay your taxes Respect and bring honor to them, even though they may not deserve it. When you do that, you're living life in the way that loves God and loves people. And then he says this, hey, besides this, you know what time it is. Do you know what time it is? It's time to get done. Do you know what time it is? Paul says this. You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed. Do you believe that today? Stop focusing on this world. Stop focusing on the the, the petty little things. And when I say petty little things, sometimes they can be wrapped up into this little like, oh, I gotta pay taxes again. Oh man, why is gas so high? They would just cut the taxes down. Or we argue and we fight and we bicker about things that will no longer be important. Our lives are like a drop in a bucket. It's like a vapor. It's there one minute and it's gone the next. How many people on their deathbed wish that they could have spent more time sharing about Jesus and his love versus how many people sit on their deathbed and they say, man, I just hate this politician and what our country has come to. They're not worried about that. Paul says a soldier, when he is a soldier, he is focused about one thing. Performing his duties. As Christ followers, Paul is reminding these early believers in Rome, listen, wake up. Here's the reason why you need to wake up. Because salvation is closer than it ever has been. And the same is true for us. Whether it's Christ's return or Christ calling you home, salvation is closer now than it ever has been. Wake up. So now he's going to give us some things that we can tangibly do. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in the orgies, drunkenness, and sexual immorality, sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He's saying, ultimately, listen, you got to wake up. Stand for what is right because it's daytime. And in doing that, we what? We cast off the darkness and we put on the light. Which reminds me of what John writes. In 1 John chapter 1. Verse 5, he says this, This is the message we have heard from him and we proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin." Very clearly, don't walk in the darkness. Don't see how close you can walk on the edge. Love God and love people. And so he says, walk properly here. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime. You can do a lot during the daytime, can't you? Some of you are like, yes, time's a ticking. Let's go, pastor. But we... Love God. And if we say that we love God, we do that by loving people. And how do we do that? We love people by putting on the armor of God. Which takes us, and should take you in your mind, hopefully to Ephesians. Where Paul talks about putting on the full armor of God. That as we get ready for battle, that we would prepare ourselves and be ready what we encounter every day, again, isn't something that we just go passively about. This isn't a call for, for passivity. I don't even know if that's a word, but I just made it. Passivity. God has not called you to just sit on the bench, He's called you to get in the game. It is daytime. Salvation is near. What are you doing to live out the light in the dark world? It is hard to sit underneath a government that embraces things that are contrary to the word of God. We've seen it, we see it in the text of the scriptures. And we've seen it in the history of not only our nation, but the world. There are times that we must, as Christ followers, stand up for the truth. And as we stand up for the truth, we should take every advantage possible to let the light of God shine through us. Standing for truth and having that zeal. There's a word here in our passage, and I don't have time to get into it, but we saw zeal earlier. Zeal left alone is not good by itself. We want to have zeal for what is right and what is God honoring and what is true. But there are times that our zeal can run ahead of what God desires. God told the nation of Israel, you turned your back on me and because of that, I'm going to send nations to come and to judge you. That needed to take place because they rebelled against God. Do we not think that our nation would be any different? And that's what scares us. In a good, righteous way, that should scare us. To believe that God is the avenger of what is wrong. What is evil. But remember, he does it in his way and in his timing. With his people that he places. That he says even here are ministers of his. You may not agree with it, and that's okay. God calls us as Christ followers to live in such a way that sees that salvation is at hand. That whatever takes place in this world, God has a part of and he has a plan And that we're called to live in such a way that exhibits that love. That we would love our neighbors in a way that the world can't possibly fathom. Are there times that we stand up? And that we protect? I think protection is a very godly thing. I see it in scripture. Here's the rub. And this is where the tension is. When is it right? When is it wrong? Thus why we are on this journey every day walking with Jesus. I can't tell you when it's right or when it would be wrong. Was it wrong that the American colonies fought for their independence? We enjoy that fruit of their labors. Those people who fought on our behalf for us. Think about the Civil War and those who fought for the freedoms of the slaves. I would hope that no one sitting here would say that slavery is a godly thing. So was it wrong for them? Was it against what Paul is writing here in Romans 13? I don't believe so. It's the same reason why we saw, and this is where my PTSD comes in, pastors in Canada and in California be thrown in jail because they were told that they couldn't meet and worship God. There are certain freedoms that we've been given by our laws. And because of those laws, because we enjoy that, we believe that we have the right to gather and to worship God together. There will come a time and there will come a day things are not getting better, nor will they, unless people turn to Jesus. How are they going to turn to Jesus? By God's sovereign ways. I pray that it's through us, the church, that people would see there's something different. Some will come to know Jesus because of each of you. And I pray in the new year that we will will show that in the holiday season coming up, that you will share the love of Jesus. There are others that will, their hearts are cold and they will totally defy the God who created them. We've already covered that. Paul's covered that in Romans 1. So what do we do? We continue to walk with Jesus. We continue to put Him on. We put on that armor and we walk, as Paul says here, we walk properly in a way that honors Him. Would you uh, stand with me and we'll close in prayer? A couple quick things just of note for you. First, um, uh, we've been praying for uh, Karen Grimes. Um, she has struggled in her health quite a bit, and last evening she went home to be with the Lord. So pray for her sister Diana. Diana Williams is her sister, and um, just uh, they they have been so close and enjoyed a friendship uh, that that is unmatchable to a lot of us. And so she's just really hurting this morning. So pray for Diana as she um, as she mourns the loss of her sister, uh, Karen. And we rejoice. Karen, uh, new Jesus, is in Jesus' presence. No more dialysis for Karen. She's got new kidneys. She doesn't have to worry about that anymore. No more suffering for her. But if you would, pray for Diana and uh, the rest of the family as they walk through that. Also, just want to encourage you, if you're not busy on Tuesday, Tuesday at 10 o'clock, we're going to, we're, I don't think me, but all of you who come on Tuesday at 10 o'clock, we're going to decorate for Christmas. And so uh, if you have any questions, you can see Casey Pittman. Uh, Casey's there. Raise your hand there, Casey. Uh, You can see her. So Tuesday at 10 o'clock, we'll enjoy that and enjoy that time together if you want to come. Uh, Casey will put you to work and it'll be a great day of just decorating. I love it because by the time that day's done, everything's decorated and it looks so good. And then January, we take it down and it looks kind of like this. Not that this is bad, this is good, but it changes so much different, right? So we'll enjoy that. Will you bow and pray with me? And as we do, I want to pray uh, an old Puritan prayer of thanksgiving in honor of where we've just come this week. Let's pray together. Oh my God, thou fairest, greatest, first of all objects. My heart admires, adores, and loves thee. For my little vessel is as full as it can be, and I would pour out all that fullness before thee in ceaseless flow. When I think upon and converse with thee, 10,000 delightful things spring up. 10,000 sources of pleasure are unsealed. 10,000 refreshing joys spread over my heart, crowding into every moment of happiness. I bless thee for the soul that thou hast created, for adorning it, sanctifying it. Though it is fixed in barren soil, for the body Thou hast given me, for preserving its strength and its vigor, for providing sense, senses to enjoy your delights, for the ease and the freedom of my limbs, for the hands, the ears, the eyes that do Thy bidding, for Thy royal bounty providing my daily support, for a full table, an overflowing cup, for an appetite for taste, sweetness, for social joys of relatives and friends, for the ability to serve others, for a heart that feels sorrow and necessities, for a mind to care for my fellow men and for opportunities of spreading happiness around. I thank you for the loved ones and the joys of heaven and for my own expectation of seeing you clearly. I love you, Lord above the powers of language to express, for thou art to thy creatures. Increase my love, O God, through time and eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name.